Andy Faber, and this is Dedicated to the Dead, the show where you get to hear the life story of someone who has died as told by the people who love them and mourn for them. Do you ever find yourself wishing that you knew more about one of your ancestors or that there was some biography or record of that ancestor's life? Have you ever considered writing your own story or creating some kind of record of your life? Not necessarily for publishing, but for your family. With the growing popularity of researching our genealogy, I think more and more of us are thinking about it, or should think about it. My guest today is Joanne Cregeer, and this episode is dedicated to her late husband, Fred. Years ago, Joanne encouraged Fred to write his story for his family, and you know what? That's exactly what he did. Fred wrote his life story with the intention of sharing it with only his family, but Joanne graciously agreed to share it with me to give me some additional background on Fred's life for the show. And let me tell you, I was completely enthralled while I read it. It's a really compelling life story. Joanne often says to me, Fred was quite a guy. And I always agreed with her based on the couple of times I met him. But after reading his autobiography, I agree with her 100%. Fred Cregeer was born on September 20th, 1927 in Geneva, Illinois, which is a western suburb of Chicago. And he died on February 10th, 2014 at the age of 86. He suffered losses at an early age, which Joanne will talk about. He served in the counterintelligence corps of the army, built his first family home with his very own hands, He fathered and raised four children, had a really successful career in manufacturing with no college degree. He experienced a painful divorce and then found his chapter two love in Joanne. Fred is even the grandson of the 31st mayor of Chicago, DeWitt Clinton Kruger. How cool is that? During his retirement, Fred and Joanne traveled the world together and had a very nice life filled with love and laughter. And you'll hear a lot of laughter in my conversation with Joanne. Mostly it's my laughter. As I was reading Fred's story, I just kept thinking, everyone needs to know this incredible life story of this remarkable man. And that's why I asked Joanne to be on the show. Joanne and I are actually very good friends. As a matter of fact, she used to be my manager about 12 years ago. And I'm so very grateful that she agreed to tell me all about Fred. This episode of Dedicated to the Dead is dedicated to the remarkable late Fred Krieger, who really was quite a guy. So Joanne, Fred's autobiography is really a treasure. So I just want to thank you for sharing it with me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. As I said in my introduction, I was enthralled by it, along with the addendum that you wrote. And you wrote that after Fred passed away, your addendum. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, What I decided to do after Fred passed away was to continue his story and have it focus more on what he and I did together because I don't think that his children ever knew the man that I knew. Mm. Fred was just 
so much fun and had such a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. But I always felt, and his children have told me, that they saw him as much more serious Mm -hmm. than I ever did. Mm -hmm. So I started an addendum called No Bucket List. At least that's the current title. Because we did everything we wanted to do. And we had so much fun doing things. And just crazy things happened that we would laugh about, you know, years later. I just wanted that documented so that his children could see the man that I knew. Yeah. I'm really glad that you did that. That was very entertaining. And we're going to get into some of that fun stuff a little later. Um, Before we begin talking about Fred, I just want you to explain why you encouraged him to write his story. I think that children want to know more about their parents' lives, but oftentimes they just don't ask the questions. Or they don't realize that they want to know it until it's too late. Exactly. I felt that way in my own situation with my dad, uh, that I wanted... wish I had talked to him more about his World War II experiences, Mm -hmm. and it's just tragic that I didn't. And I think that it is important that our children, grandchildren, have a better understanding on the era in which we grew up in and how different it is from what they might be experiencing now. I remember talking to my grandma Uh, and grandpa on both sides of their lives. And I remember their stories, but I don't know that families today take the time to share those kinds of things. Right. So many people are working. Grandparents are working. Right. So it's not the same as as it was. No, it's not. It's not the same at all. So Fred undertook his autobiography in his early 70s. I think he said in his autobiography that he was 73 as of the writing. And as we know from the introduction, he died at the age of 86. He did add another chapter when he was in his early 80s because he said he was surprised that he was still around. (laughs) 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 Which is a wonderful thing, but I found that to be very, very humorous. Um, So... Did he write his autobiography like the first time you encouraged him to do it or did it take some prodding? Well, I don't think it it took a lot of prodding. Fred was retired and it just seemed like it was something that made sense for him to do. He was a good writer. Um, he, He had the time and the interest in documenting and telling his story. Yeah. So I'd like to read a couple of lines from his forward. He actually included a forward in his autobiography, which was also um, pretty wonderful. Uh, In it, he writes that his reason for writing it is essentially what you said, that he regrets not knowing more about his ancestors and wants his descendants to have information uh, about his life and what his life was like should they ever be interested. So here are a couple of lines from his forward. As I have gotten older, 
I have often regretted not knowing or even thinking to ask many things concerning various details of my parents' or grandparents' lives until it was too late and they were gone from this earth. There are so many questions now that I have no answers for regarding their lives, and I'm so disappointed that I was too busy with my own life to take the time to ask them when they were still with me. I realize their lives were not extraordinary, nor has mine been, but most of us will eventually wish we knew more about our loved ones as they pass on. And I think he's exactly right. So um, I think it's a fantastic thing, and I hope a lot of our listeners will do it after hearing this story. So let's first start talking about Fred's life before you. Um, Tell me about uh, Fred's parents. Okay. Because of Fred's autobiography, I know uh, quite a bit about his early life, his parents. His mother had already passed away when I came into Fred's life the second time around. So I didn't actually know her, although he often said, I know my mom would have really liked you. (laughs) But his parents uh, had an interesting courtship. His dad was in his 50s when he met and uh, married Julia, who was 19 at the time. So So more than a 30-year age difference between Fred's parents. And I just want to clarify for the audience that um, this marriage between you and Fred was a second marriage for both of you, which we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Okay, so yeah, 30-year age difference between the two of them. Uh, Fred's father had been married before, I, I think he had been married maybe six years or so, and his first wife passed away of what we think was tuberculosis. But anyway, he was living in a, uh, a lodging house in Geneva, and Fred's mother, Julia, was a housekeeper there, and that's how they met. That's how they met. And it, it was kind of uh, interesting. I mean, there was a huge uh, age difference, but they obviously were attracted to one another, and uh, they married. And we kind of have uh, speculated about what her parents might have been thinking to agree to a marriage with such an age difference. Julia's family was Italian immigrants who... Um, certainly had no family wealth, just working-class people. Mm-hmm. And Fred's father, uh, who also was named Fred, he came from a family that had a great deal of wealth. His father had been a mayor of Chicago, and Fred was uh, one of 13 children. I think he was probably the youngest. Fred Sr. Fred was Sr. one of 13. Mm-hmm. But he never had a job because he never had to work. It was just they lived on the family wealth. Mm-hmm. And so we suspect, speculate, that Julia's parents said, you know, Julia, if you marry Fred, you'll never have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. And so they did get married. Yeah, and so then, they got married in 1926. Yep, and, and then Fred, Fred was born in 27. And then we all know what happened in 1929. Right. And the family's wealth was in stock. And they just lost everything. Hmm. So Fred uh, Sr., for the first time in his life, had to find a job. Hmm. And he got a job in a factory. Hmm. Wow. And they moved in with Julia's parents uh, and lived with them. And it was really kind of ironic that they felt that she would never have to worry about anything. Hmm by marrying Fred, but it ended up that they ended up really supporting them. Right, 
The ironies of fate. Yes, yes, that is so ironic. And he writes very vividly about that time. Um, he has some pretty vivid memories of his mom going to rummage sales and wheeling and dealing to try to get the family what they needed. So it really, really, he really paints a picture of what life was like living in the Depression there. He, he um, found, after his mom passed away, a ledger that she kept where she wrote down every expense, even to the pennies of what she had. Now, this was really? when she was a widow, but she was widowed pretty young and right. had four children. Right. Or three right. children at that time because Bobby had passed away. Right. So let's talk about Bobby. Well, first let's talk about the siblings. So Fred is the oldest of four, even though his father was the youngest of 13? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, Fred was the oldest of four. He had a younger brother, Bobby, and two younger sisters. So Bobby was not well. Bobby was born with what they termed a blue baby. Uh, so it, it was some heart condition. Mm -hmm. or he wasn't getting um, really the oxygen. And Fred said he really did have a blue cast mm -hmm. to his skin. Mm -hmm. So he could not exert himself because of his heart condition. Uh, he could not. And Mandy, you mentioned that in the second part of Fred's autobiography, he said, well, I didn't think I would still be here. Right. And we, we sort of teased uh, Fred's children and, my, and me, teased him about his, uh, it wasn't a preoccupation with death, but it was an awareness of death. Mm -hmm. And Fred and I talked about this, about why he felt the way he did. And we kind of really thought that in his family, as a young boy, death was present. Mm -hmm. Bobby could die any moment. Mm -hmm. And he was really and aware of that. They Fred all was. knew that. Mm -hmm. They all had to be very, very careful. Bobby could not go to school mm -hmm. because of the exertion. Mm -hmm. he, Fred would pull him around in a wagon. So I mean, there, his activities were so limited. And I'm sure that every day they thought, you know, this, he, he may die if he does this or if he does that. As a matter of fact, Fred's mom had bought a puppy um, and she kind of blamed herself because Bobby would play with the puppy. Mm. And when he died at 14, she thought, I, it was that puppy. I should not have given him that puppy. She felt that he exerted yeah. himself too much by yeah. playing with the puppy. But, you know, that's always hindsight. Yeah. But he loved the puppy and enjoyed it. And you know, he, he wouldn't have lived to be very old, regardless, yeah. puppy or no puppy. Right. Fred and Bobby had a very special bond he writes about some details in there about them playing games together. Um, and tell us about Bobby's diary. Uh, Bobby kept a diary. It's really cute. As a matter of fact, it's in the Geneva History Museum right now. That is fantastic. And uh, he will say, you know, I, play, I played Monopoly with my brother Fred. You know, he won 25 cents or, or whatever it was. <laughs> but... Uh, it, it, but he would always end it with like, well, that's all there is to say. Mm -hmm. uh, Fred's sister, Gloria, wrote a biography of Bobby. She was kind of a family writer also. And uh, in it, the title was, And That's All I Have to Say. Mm, yeah, that's very, very fitting. So at the age of 14, Bobby passed away. 
Um, we'll say not from playing with the puppy. <laughs> we will say that. Okay. And in Fred's autobiography, um, he writes about how Bobby got sick and was in the hospital. He and his mother went to visit Bobby in the hospital. And the doctors uh, late in the evening said, it's probably best for you to go home. You can come back in the morning. And unfortunately, it was overnight that Bobby died. And so Bob, um, Bobby's death really affected Fred. And he wrote a couple lines about it. I really have never gotten over the guilty feeling that I should somehow have stayed with him and the feeling of great sadness that no one of his family was there with him when he was dying. Um, and then he goes on to talk about Bobby's diary and how that was such a treasure to him. So, so yeah, he, he did experience tragic death at a very young age. Fred did. And then a few years later, his father died. Fred was 19 when his dad died. Right. And Fred was working, and he was always a very hard worker, um, mm -hmm. always interested in achieving. And his dad was always to pick him up after work. They just had the one car, obviously. Right. And so he was finishing up doing some things inside and wanting to impress his boss. And so it was after these uh, time when ordinarily he would have left. But one of the guys came in and said, Fred, I think your dad is having some problems out in the car. And Fred went out and could tell that his dad was in distress. It was a heart attack, and he took him immediately to the uh, hospital in Geneva. But he always felt um, guilty uh, that he, if he hadn't finished up those last few things, right. maybe it would have made a difference. So once again, it was just uh, experiencing loss and, and feelings of guilt uh, that really shaped his views on life and how precious life is and how yeah. quickly it can be taken from you. Right, right. Because he was only 16 when Bobby died, and then three years later, 19 when his father died. So that's a lot. That's a lot and, to deal and with. And at that point, he became the man of the family. He became the man of the family, that's uh, right. At 19, because right. um, he then had two younger sisters mm -hmm. and his mom. Mm -hmm. His mom was working in a factory, mm -hmm. not making much money and watching every penny. Mm -hmm. Uh, to make ends meet, keep the household together. Um, so that was it was a, it was a struggle for them, but they struggled as a family. Right. So because of his family's modest means, Fred did not go to college, but he did get a job then, right? Yes, he did. He started working for what was the name of the company? Well, he. If, uh, Start, he started at another uh, company, but his high school math teacher, Gus Lynch, called him because he remembered that Fred was good at math and wanted to know if he wanted to come and kind of be his assistant at Dunbar Capital. Mm -hmm. uh, and Fred jumped at the chance because he wasn't doing very much in the other factory job. Mm -hmm. So um, he was kind of it was sort of like assistant engineer, but it was really... He said doing the grunt work for Gus, you know, making copies of blueprints and just doing stuff like that. But Gus really took him under his wing and um, helped him to learn a great deal about manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. He writes about how he was such a mentor to him. And then the Korean War started. Uh, Fred, Fred was drafted in May of 1951. And... Um, 
he uh, writes in his autobiography about his experiences. And uh, he never made it out of the US because the Korean War was uh, winding down. But while he was there, he uh, was acknowledged for um, being uh, above average in intelligence. Right. And he was asked to be part of their counterintelligence corps. Right. And uh, he talks about how he was um, taught how to pick locks. And for the longest time, he had a lock picking kit. Yeah, he says I, in the biography that he kept the original lock picking set that and he got. I'm thinking maybe his daughter Missy has it now. Okay. Is what, and that's another story too. But there, there's so many stories we could go on for for days and days and days. Right. But he was also, um, because of his leadership, even at this early age, he was identified as the outstanding trainee for the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was always, he was just always an achiever. He was, he was quite a guy. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that seemed to come from his modest background. Like uh, when he wrote when he was in high school, um, having gone to a Catholic school that didn't have a lot of intramural sports that he felt he was kind of behind the eight ball and catching up with the other the other boys when he wanted to go out for sports and that he was just very determined to always, always do his best. That was really a theme that I kind of picked up on. So then he comes back from the Korean War. Uh, luckily, he didn't he didn't see any combat. He was never he overseas. Not. Never left the United States. Never left the United States. But he did travel around the United States a little bit in his uh, his military career. Um, so then he comes back and he's got his job waiting for him. Thankfully, at Dunbar Capel, um, and then he meets a woman. And he gets married, his first wife, um, at the age of 29. Yes, and they um, were married in 1957. Mm -hmm. And they had four children, Mm -hmm. whom Fred dearly, dearly loved with all of his heart and soul. As he loved anybody he loved, it was always unconditional. Right. Um, And he talks about how he built his own house, (laughs) the, the first house that they were going to share as a family. And... He did that on nights and weekends with the help of um, some family members and contractors that they knew, right? That's correct. Fred and his wife's, well, Fred's uh, brother-in-law was an architect, so for a wedding gift, that he gave them the design for a very small house. I think it was like 1,200 square feet. It was a ranch home, and they... Uh, he, he built that. He worked at night. Uh, a relative of his, uh, his sister's husband, was um, a concrete uh, guy, and they did the block basement. And he tells a story about at night, John, his brother-in-law, would be down laying the blocks, and Fred was running the wheelbarrow up and down the boards right. as they were mixing it in the uh, cement mixer. With the mortar. And the mortar, and he would say, John would say, more mortar for porter, because yes. that was his last name. John's last name was Porter. <laughs> so John was right. mortaring away, and Fred right. was running up and down with the uh, mortar. But it, uh, they lived in that home for, for quite a long time. It, it was a small home, and obviously with four children, they quickly outgrew that. 
They quickly outgrew that, yes. You know, I just want to uh, uh, regress just for a second because I actually knew Fred and his family when they lived in that house back in the 70s oh. because that's when we first met when our sons, who were the same age, played Tri-City Youth Football. Oh, okay. Fred was president of the league and I was the publicity woman. Oh. And so I knew him, mm-hmm. but... Never, ever dreamed in a million years that uh, we would get married. Okay. And we'll hear about how that happened. We will hear about that later. Right. So Fred and his wife ended up getting divorced in 1978. And after that, Fred really focused on, obviously, his children. But he was also focused on his career because there was a lot going on with his career once he came back from the military. So tell us a little bit about the progression of his career after he after his military career. Okay, uh, um, he started working for uh, International Harvester, and he was brought into that by a friend of his, uh, George Martin, and um, he had worked with George at the Victor Fluid Power, and George was working at International Harvester, and he recognized Fred's talents and uh, brought him on board. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember exactly how many years he worked with uh, uh, International Harvester, but it was a time in the 70s when interest rates were you know, sky high. Right. We're talking about you know, 15, 16, maybe 20%, I don't know. Right. But International Harvester was uh, reeling with the debt that they had and could no longer service their debt. And they were, they were just uh, getting rid of things, getting rid of assets in order to raise money. And one of the things that Fred saw as an opportunity was to buy off their hydraulic uh, section of right. International Harvester. And so, was that the section where, that was the division where he worked? Yes, mm-hmm. that, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And he put together Project Hope, and a business plan for how they might do that. Mm -hmm. He approached International Harvester about selling it off and um, at at one of the board meetings they had. And um, I'm just going to digress for a second because it's kind of a cute story. He was at one of their company meetings, and he was president of the hydraulic section. And it's all the um, people in International Harvester, and they're talking about the money that they're losing. Mm -hmm. And Fred said, well, this division made money. And the comment was, oh, well, that's just lost in rounding. Hmm. It was such a huge company. Hmm. And the hydraulic section was a very small part of it. Interesting. But they said, no, they didn't sell off uh, the, that, that division. And then Fred said, but you did. You sold uh, a section, not the fluid power, but another section to uh, some people in Batavia. So they called him the next day and said, hey, if you're still interested, we'd like to talk. Yeah, make us an offer. That's what they said. So he got a team together and raised the money to buy Duke's Fluid Power from International Harvester, which is an unbelievable story to me, that he would be able to assemble a team to buy a division from International Harvester. Well, it was a struggle, and uh, he and the team he put together worked very, very hard to to raise the money. Uh, They were coming up short, 
and uh, to the tune of like $600,000. And so his benefactor, uh, Larry Dempsey, uh, knew Fred. And uh, Fred called Larry and he said, you know, we just, we're not going to be able to pull it off. I just can't raise any more money. We've been everywhere. No, the banks don't want to lend anything to us. We mm -hmm. just can't. We can't come up with the rest. We're 600000 short. Yeah, they were really scrambling. Right. And Larry said, let me get back to you. And he called him back and he said, um, Fred, you've got the money. And he put up stock, and he said, I'm betting on you. Yeah, Larry really showed yeah. a lot of faith. Oh, it wouldn't have happened without him. No. No doubt. Larry, or Fred was always very, very indebted to uh, Larry and the, uh, the trust that he had in him. But he knew Fred would work night and day to make it a go, which he did. He did. He said he worked 100-hour weeks. Wow. You know, he'd be president during the day and... Put on his coveralls at night behind the door and right. go out and redo valves right. or whatever had to be done. Right. And that paid off because uh, a company called Dan Foss out of Denmark. Denmark. They, they were looking for a toehold in the United States in terms of the valve business. And, um, you know, they're looking around and they saw uh, Duke's Fluid Power, the small company mm -hmm. in St. Charles who had a good track record. They had a good track and record. their yeah. largest client was John Deere. Mm, right. And uh, this, all of this impressed Dan Foss, mm -hmm. and they uh, made an offer mm -hmm. that uh, Fred felt they couldn't refuse. Right. They ended up buying Duke's Fluid Power for $2.5 from International Harvester. And then when Dan Foss was uh, from Denmark, was looking around for to get a toehold in the U.S., they approached Fred with an offer of $13 million. It's just um, unbelievable. When I read that, I couldn't believe it. It, 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 was, it was quite remarkable. And as you can imagine, now Fred is getting older now. And uh, so he's looking for his retirement also. Heck and yeah. And thinking, oh my God, this is, a, you know, this is just a godsend. Right. Uh, we need to, uh, to, to do that, to... to you know, it would certainly secure his retirement. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Uh, Let's just Fred, clarify, Fred, Fred didn't get the entire 13.5 Absolutely, I million. wish he had. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there were stockholders, and you must remember that Larry Dempsey owned over 50%. Right. Because he was the one who made it all happen. Right. But um, Fred said in his autobiography that, that he was astounded at the sum, and um, it was more than their book value, which was that $4.5 at that, that point. That was another shocking thing, that, right. that Dan yeah. Foss was willing to offer three times more right. mm -hmm, than what they were worth. And one of the Dempsey children told Fred, you know, we're going to counter-offer at 13.5. <laughs> he thought, oh, no, 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 we're going to lose this. And uh, anyway, he took it back to the uh, Dan Foss, and the guy he was working with said, well, okay, but not one penny more. Not one penny So they more. actually sold it for the 13.5, and they did ask Fred to stay on until he was, uh, as president, until he was 65. Right. Uh, which in many European countries, and even some uh, companies in the U.S., 65 is a mandatory retirement age. Right. The Dempsey child had said, Fred, you don't want to sell. You know, if you do, you'll never be able to make the decisions <laughs> again. 
But at his age, he didn't care. No, he did not care. He was like, I'll take the money and run, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, so Fred is retired, but we kind of have to overlap that story with how you and Fred got together. That's right. Because you were around for his retirement. I was around for his retirement, and it was really just kind of interesting. I, I think that fate plays such a, an important part in all of our lives, and no more so than in Fred's and mine. I mentioned that I knew Fred back in the 70s when our kids played uh, youth football, and actually the boys even got together on occasion because they were both really into the playing army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I certainly knew him. And I had heard that he had gotten a divorce, but I'd never laid eyes on him. They moved to St. Charles. I, I did hear that, but I didn't really give it a second thought, to tell the truth. I was happily married and going about my business. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, 1988, I wasn't so happily married right. and was divorced. Right. Uh, and um, I was. it was in 1989 that I was taking my youngest son to buy shoes, school shoes, so September. And when we stopped by McDonald's in Geneva on the east side, Fred was standing at the counter. And I by himself? By himself. Okay. And I walked up to him and I said, Aren't you Fred Cregier? I mean, I hadn't seen him for decades. Mm-hmm. And he said, Yes. And I said, Well, I'm, you know, Joanne Olson. And our kids played youth football. He said, Oh yeah, I remember. And uh, I said, Do you want to sit with us? And so he did. I love that part of the story that you took the bull by the horns and well, invited him right to away. Sit. <laughs> not right away. That was a bold Matt, move. <laughs> Matt proceeded to tell him my life story about the divorce. I'm kicking Matt under the table. And um, I love got, Matt for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. When uh, I got ready to leave, Fred said, you know, if you ever need anything, I want you to just call me. And I really mean that. <laughs> so, and? And the next day, <laughs> I went to the office. I was working, obviously. I went to my manager's office, and I said, oh, Tim, last night I heard words that were music to these ears. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever want anything, just call. And we just laughed and teehed. But to tell the truth, I was a little interested. And so I wrote Fred a letter uh, it took me a while to compose it. I wasn't as good a writer as he was. It wouldn't have taken so, him so much time. But just kind of opening the door, uh, you know, that, you know, I don't remember what I said, but opening the door for him to call <laughs> me. And about a month later, I got a letter from him saying, well, it was nice to see you, and I hope you and Ted get back together again. I thought, well, that's a lost cause. Oh, that was a real buzzkill so response. I thought, well, I didn't think any more about it, to tell the truth. But... And I think it's because Fred is so humble. I think I think you had mentioned to me before that Fred couldn't believe that you would be interested in him. He, and I think he might even mention that in his autobiography. I think he does, too. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's so, where I got it. you know, that's, okay, chalk that one up. All right, so then what happened? Well, then what happened is fate, fate came in again. And that spring, our um, small hospital in Geneva was uh, combining with a another small hospital, but bigger than Geneva's, uh, down our hospital in St. Charles. And my friend was a captain on the capital campaign. and um, So she was in charge of raising money. Well, she was in charge of a small group because we divided into teams. Okay. 
And she was a captain of like a group of like five people or so. And she called and asked if I would be part of her team because one of our friends had said, I just can't do that. I can't go out and ask people for money. So I said, You can ask people for anything. I just want the audience to know, Joanne, that you can ask people for anything. So, Well, apparently they got the right person. They did. So anyway, I told her that I would do that. But I still, Fred was the farthest thing from my mind. But they had a very structured... Um, system. And one of the things is that you, we went to a room, uh, a, a house that the hospital owned, and they had people's names on flip charts. And they had down the amount that they thought they were good for. Okay. And our goal was to, serve. what we were told to do is to select five people. And Fred's name was on one of the flip charts. And you nabbed it. I said, I'll take Fred. <laughs> I took four others too. <laughs> so I called. I don't Fred. think you remember them as well as you remember Fred. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't know if they gave anything either, to tell the <laughs> truth. But anyway, so that was in the spring. But it was a long. It was a long process, you know. And, and we were supposed to give him a videotape, and he invited me to a, a family canoe party he was having, and I went to that and took a sheet, pineapple sheet cake. I remember that. <laughs> And, you know, but you okay, don't remember those other four people. You I remember, remember you took a pineapple people, But let me go back. <laughs> when I called Fred to ask him uh, about um, or tell him about the campaign, and we were told you do not tell them how much you are asking for. That comes much later. You have to really soften them up. Mm. So I talk kind of fast, as you might have gathered by now. And so uh, I called him, and I said, Fred, I'm Joanne Olson. I'm working on the uh, capital campaign, and um, I, we, I selected your name. I don't know how I said it, but to get money or something. And he misunderstood me. He thought I was asking for him to identify people. And he said, oh, he said, I can probably come up with some, I don't like to do that, but I can probably come up with some names for you. Hmm. And I said, Fred, I want your money. That's right. And he said, oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> but we still never talked, never talked amounts. Okay. Dropped off the video at their family party. And he was president of a company. He was working all the time. I was working at a, an accounting firm in St. Charles. I was working all the time. And we just never, I didn't, wasn't following the process. And it was time to collect the money. So I told him that, uh, you know, we were going to be collecting their donation. And I thought in my mind, I don't care if he gives $100. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, thank you. You're very generous. And just think I did a crappy job. That was all there is to it. <laughs> so he came over that night with his checkbook in hand. And um, he said, you know, uh, the hospital was very good when my mom was dying. And I really want to, you know, make a nice uh, contribution. And so he wrote out the check for the exact amount that was on the flip chart. Wow. Isn't that something? So, of course, after he left, I ran to the phone. I called my friend and said, oh, Sheila, Sheila, Fred gave blah, blah, blah. And she turned to her husband to say, George, Fred gave what he gave. And George said, I don't care about that. Did she get a date? <laughs> no, I didn't get a date. However, it did give me the opportunity to thank him by inviting him over for dinner. There you go. 
And so I did that. Okay. And he, he was always so good to Matt. You know, he'd bring him books and he just was just... Matt's your youngest son yes, from yeah. your first marriage. And how old was he at the time? He must have been around 11 or 12. Okay. And by then, maybe he was like 12, maybe okay. even 13. Okay. But Fred really took an interest in him, probably just to gain my favor, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, it worked. So he came for dinner, but still nothing's happening. You know, it's just... Uh, <laughs> Things are not progressing well, did, along quickly enough. He did invite me to like a party that they were having, a tent party for the people who donated. Okay. And um, I remember a friend of mine saying something about, oh, are you dating Fred? I said, oh, gosh, no. I said, he would be so embarrassed if he thought anybody thought that. He just, you know, has invited me to go. And I did. And then they were having a dinner dance um, that fall. And he called me. And he said, I would like to invite you to go to the dinner dance. And he said, I do one of those two things. <laughs> Either eating or dancing. <laughs> well, it was the eating. <laughs> but we went. We had a good time. But still, there's just, you know, there's just not, you know, there's not much going on there. Okay. Um, I because don't Fred to, being I, I don't humble be, Fred. I don't want to belabor all of this. But I then had a Christmas party. And I invited Fred. You know, about a few days before the party, um, a lovely floral arrangement arrived. And uh, it was from Fred. I thought, you know, he is such a gentleman. He mm. is such a good guy. Yeah. And um, I was talking to a friend that I had talked with, and I mentioned that, that this floral arrangement arrived. And she said, he's interested in you. I said, <laughs> oh, no, 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 Pat. No, not at all. Not at all. He's just a nice guy. And she said, he is interested, and I want to know what you did. He is the catch of Geneva. He's the catch of Geneva. <laughs> So we, had, he was, Christmas, we he? had a Christmas party. Yeah. And then in the January or something. Um, That's January of what year? Well, it would have to be like in 19, what, what would have been 1990 then? That would be 91, actually. I'm looking at my, um, it was in, in 91. And um, it took a long time, Mandy, for this to take place. I invited him to a play uh, to go to Chicago with my two sons. And we saw Mark Twain roughing it. And on the way home, uh, he held my hand. Yeah, that's so sweet. And um, and then it was after that, we just really started dating regularly. Okay, so that was the official start of your but, courtship. But it wasn't like it all happened within a very short period of time. No, from 1989 to 1991. It was a long time. Wow, it yeah. A long time. It took a long time to reel him in. A long time to reel him in. It was a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but he okay. was worth it. Tell us about your proposal. Well, he wanted to propose at McDonald's because that's where we had gotten reacquainted, and we did. But um, And in his autobiography, he includes a picture of that McDonald's location, which I thought was so sweet. Can, can I tell about the engagement ring? Sure. Okay. We went to a jewelry store in uh, Elgin to pick up my engagement ring, and um, to pick up or pick out? Pick out. Okay. And it was at Shack Shackey's, and Peter was the one of the owners. And so he's explaining to Fred and to me how you uh, select a diamond. You know, it's the Kiara, the clarity. Right, the four C's. Yeah, I can't think what The cut uh, and the, the color. color. Mm -hmm. So he's showing this matrix to Fred, and 
Fred looks at it, he says, okay, well, we want one in this. And he pointed up to the very highest matrix. And Peter said, well, you know, that's really more like for collectors. <laughs> and he said, um, you know, what size are you thinking about? And Fred turned to me and he said, well, what size did you want, Joanne? And I said, well, you have to beat a three-fourths. Three-fourths. I had for the first time. All right. So he had to so outdo he, he your he turned first. to the guy, said, oh, I don't know, two or three carats. And I said to the jeweler, you'd better put some dollars to that for him. Right. But, of course, by then Two he, was, or three carats. he was committed to it. So I have a beautiful, beautiful you engagement. You do ring. have a beautiful Gorgeous ring. engagement ring. Yes. Gorgeous. I love it so much. Okay. So you guys are engaged, and your wedding is planned for when? We were married on June 17th, 1995. Okay. So tell us about your wedding. We had a wonderful wedding, and all of our children, I have no daughters, so Fred's three daughters were uh, in the wedding. His son, Rod, was his best man, and my three sons were also part of the wedding, and my granddaughter, Brittany, was also the flower girl. We just It was just um, a wonderful, wonderful wedding. I had the white dress on the whole nine yards because I had eloped the first time. Right. And Fred said, I want you to have a really nice wedding. Right. That's so sweet. So we did. And lots of good friends. Um, wonderful reception. We were out at Prairie Landing, and one of the um, guests reported later that one of the waiters walked by and said, boy, these old people sure know how to have a good time. <laughs> the other part of that which Fred swore me to secrecy, but I guess it doesn't matter anymore. Cat's out of the bag now. Cat's out of the bag. He, um, we, we got to the Harrington Inn where we spent our wedding night, and he said, Joanne, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise you never, ever, ever will tell anybody. So, so much for promises, Fred. But he said they were at the end of the evening, you know, the uh, people were uh, at Prairie Landing, were asking if we'd had a good time. Was everything okay? I said, yeah, it was really great. Everything was wonderful. And and he said, I gave him a $1,000 tip. Oh I said, I don't gosh. know what I was thinking. <laughs> well, he was in love. He, said, don't he was ever, deliriously don't in love. Tell anybody about <laughs> yeah, well, it's in his autobiography. Well, then everybody knows. Yes, And if they right. didn't know before, they know now. Right. So Fred's son, Rod, was his best man at the wedding, right? That's correct. So he gave the toast at the wedding. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. In his autobiography, he includes the toast in its entirety, but the last part of the toast was just really beautiful to me when I read it, and I would like to share it with our listeners now. My daddy was my teacher, defender, and my friend. We faced the world together, we two until the end. The bikes I learned to ride then, the biggest fish I caught, the trees I learned to climb then, the golf game that you taught. The spooky, ghostly stories on campfire autumn nights and cutting sticks for hot dogs, marshmallows burning bright. I said I wouldn't do it. Aw, heck, Dad, here it goes. You know how much I love you, and I don't care who knows. Because what it all comes down to, what I'm trying to say, is just how truly blessed I am to be your son this day. So come now, friends, and join me. I ask you as your host to raise your glasses highly now and join me in this toast. 
That's such a beautiful testament. It is. And I also want to add that my son, my oldest son, Michael, was also going to give a toast. He had talked to Rod before, and Rod said, oh, I'm just going to say a few things. He didn't know he was going to have this long poem <laughs> that he was going to say. And so toast. then he followed He Rod? had to follow him. Holy cow. But he did a great job. Uh, he... Um, just right, you know, off, just off the cuff, he said that uh, the marriage, she brought him something he had never had before, three sisters. <laughs> That's uh, right. So he, he did a great job of toasting us, too. It wasn't the poem, but it was very nice, and yeah. he was thinking on his feet after having to follow Rod. Right, right. Okay, so you guys are married, and in his autobiography, he talks about the fact that you guys have two houses. We do. So what did you do about that? Well, he had, um, uh, it was his mom's house and his grandparents' house, actually. So it, uh, it was on the river in Geneva, Fox River. And he came to have this house on the Fox River after his divorce, and he moved back in with his mother in order to pay for the house that his soon-to-be ex-wife and children were living in. Oh, sure. He, right. I mean, it was really a struggle for him. I don't know that, that uh, maybe they were aware, but... Uh, he told me that many times uh, he was eating hot dogs because he wanted to make sure his children yeah. were not deprived of anything right. uh, because as a result of the divorce. So but he was living in the house that his, his mother's parents... And, and mm-hmm. mother. Uh, right. So it was a third-generation right. uh, family. He bought it when she passed away mm-hmm. from his sisters mm-hmm. and had remodeled it, added on a very nice uh, addition to the back of the house. It was kind of like a Dutch colonial, and it was a fine house. Uh, I had a ranch home on the other side of town, and mine was a fine home too, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Fred wanted to be on the river. Mm-hmm. And we just really couldn't come up with anything. We talked to architects about how we might make it into more of what we were looking for. And we just didn't come up with anything. So Fred said, I think we're going to have to tear down the house. Meaning his family house. The family house on the river. We work with an architect on a design uh, for the house that we're now in, that I'm now in. That we're recording in. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember standing with him with the wrecking ball. Really? You remember that? I do, because he said, Joanne, if you're going to change your mind, for God's (laughs) sake, do it now. (laughs) Oh, that's such a friend thing to say. So anyway, that house came down, (laughs) and the... Thank God for Fred, who was so conscientious and so detail-oriented. I would never build a house. There's so many details. and he. I would, have heard that from everybody oh who has built a house. He drove our builder crazy. But real quick, I want to ask yeah. you, how did Fred feel when his family house came down? Did, did he have any adverse reaction to that or emotional reaction to that that you recall? Yeah, I don't recall anything. I'm sure it probably did because it really had been the house he had lived in, except for when he was married uh, and up in Minnesota for a while. But, uh, well, if he had misgivings, he didn't let on. No. He just wanted to make sure you didn't have any misgivings (laughs) before that ball hit the house. Because otherwise he was perfectly happy to stay there the rest of his life. Right. Okay, so you, you you built this beautiful house, sold your house, moved in here, and it's a gorgeous home on the river, 
and the river that he grew up on and that he loved. And that provided so many memories of his childhood for him and really, really illustrated what life was like on the river. So at the end of Fred's autobiography, he mentions the river and how it's played such an important role in his life. And I want to read from that uh, to the audience. As I look back over my life, I am intrigued by the fact that the river runs through it. From earliest childhood on to now, it has somehow always played a significant part in my story and has always had a mysterious appeal. Fred always made the river a big part of his life and the life of his children as well. And his son wrote him a letter which kind of illustrates how he feels about the river. And I want to read from that letter also. The river and Graham's house have been a large part of our lives, yours especially. I'm glad we had the opportunity to live and play there. I hope to be able to take my children down to the river and let it teach them the way it taught me, that childhood is a time for rivers. I've learned that life is a lot like a river. It has many faces, changing with the seasons. Sometimes it is mysterious and dangerous, and other times placid. It can be friendly or deadly, but above all, it just flows on and on. Then it's apparently just about Father's Day, so Rod continues to write, I just want you to know that I couldn't possibly have been more lucky in the father I got. Thank you for being my friend and for showing me the river. I will follow the example with my children, and hopefully you will be there to help me through the rough spots like you always have. I truly love you and wish you all the best. And his son Rod does continue to come to visit you and to bring his children to the river, right? That's right. Every summer, uh, whenever he's in town, he always asks if he can come over, and he knows he's always welcome, always. And uh, one of his first things is to go down to the river, and I know he's thinking about his dad. That's lovely. So you have said to me about the different worlds that you and Fred open to one another, so why don't you share that with us? I had mentioned to you that I'm writing the now titled No Bucket List, um, with all the experiences that Fred and I had uh, as a married couple. And we traveled a great deal. And uh, one of the things that I say in that draft is that Fred opened the world to me in terms of travel, Mm -hmm. and I feel that I opened the world to him in terms of literature. We would read so many uh, books and talk about them. He was really an intellectual, mm-hmm. and my background was uh, English teacher, so of course I have a thousand books. And we would read them and talk about them, and um, I know that he read books he would never have thought about mm-hmm. uh, or ever been uh, introduced to. Uh, so I, I think that was a two-way street. But certainly in terms of travel, we went everywhere we wanted to go. Mm, Uh, As a matter of fact, I know we'll probably get to this later, but the um, day that he died, uh, I was at work, and we were exchanging emails that morning, and he had um, sent me an email, which I still have, 
And he said, would you help me with the airline reservations tonight when you get home? Because I can't always hear what they're saying on the phone. And we were planning to go to St. John's in just a few weeks. Mm, so yeah. he was planning um, living life up to the very, very end. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so we can't have this episode dedicated to Fred without talking about his death. So uh, tell us what you want to share about Fred's death. Well, um, Fred, Fred had had some uh, health problems, certainly for a while, and was getting regular transfusions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, he had issues with anemia. Well, it was more than anemia, but it, it wasn't leukemia. But his, um, he had had prostate cancer at, uh, a few years back, and they did radiation seed implants, and we always suspected that that impacted uh, the bone marrow. So uh, his bone marrow was not producing red blood cells. Okay. So uh, eventually he got to the point where he was having transfusions, and he was having health concerns, obviously, but he was totally functional and, um, uh, you know, just just living living life for sure. And um, the September before he passed away, this kind of illustrates his humor again. But uh, the September before he passed away, he'd been in the hospital for a while with an infection, and it was pretty serious. He was a pretty sick guy. But then, you know, he rallied uh, after that. But we thought he probably needed to have somebody in to kind of uh, be here with him, at least to maybe make lunch and so forth. Yeah, because so you were still working. I was still working. Mm -hmm. So we had um, an agency send somebody over. We thought a guy would be good, and his name was Larry. And Larry was there, was with Fred uh, maybe two days. And I came home from work one day and I said, well, how did Larry work out? He said, I fired him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need him. I don't need anybody sitting there just watching me. Oh, my God. Well, I'm doing my stuff. Then we tried another gal. He fired her, too. Oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to uh, more seriously. Uh, it was in February. And um, I had gone to work, and as I said, we were exchanging uh, emails uh, back and forth. And um, I, I left work early that day, and I, I came home, and uh, Fred was in the powder room, and, and he, he passed away, although, you know, you're never sure. I, oh, I didn't realize he was in the powder room was, when you found him. Yeah. Oh. So I called 911 immediately, and... They said, is he breathing? Well, you know, I don't know. You yeah. know, I said, just get here. Right. Just get here. And so they said, well, you have to do CPR. And you have to get him down on, flat on the floor. I thought, and, no, but in retrospect, you think, I'm sure, I'm sure he was dead. Mm -hmm. But I thought, I, I can't. I'm afraid I'll hurt him. <laughs> but anyway, I Got him down on the floor and was doing what they were saying. They have you keep the phone right there while right. they give you instruction. Mm -hmm. And really, the paramedics were here very, 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 very quickly. Um, and they took him to the hospital. They worked on him, but, you know, I don't think that uh, it, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't work. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't going and to I work. Knew that. Yeah. And it's like everybody who experiences a shock like that, you just really, you just react. You know, you just right. do the things. 
However, Fred made it a lot easier on all of us by having planned to the nth degree his funeral. <laughs> Not only planned, but even paid for it. Oh, my gosh. And he wrote his own obituary. He did? And it, It's a fantastic it, obituary. It I've read it. It is wonderful. I actually uh, helped him with it, and I think I, I, I edited it at least four times. But he had a beautiful obituary. Okay. I should write mine. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I can have what I want. Right. But everything, I just kept thinking that he would have loved everything about, about his, his funeral. funeral. Yeah. For because you thing, said... He, for one thing, he always said, you know, Joanne, nobody's going to come. You're right. probably the only person there, <laughs> my kids. I said, well, that's not true. Fred was extremely well-respected in the community, more yeah. so than he ever realized, right. I think, or would ever acknowledge. Right. And so there were probably, the funeral director thought there were like 400 people uh, there for the visitation. It's amazing. Fred was Catholic, and they, of course, do the regular Catholic ritual things for the, the holy water. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kept thinking, he would have loved it. <laughs> and then his son, uh, Rod, who um, it was a colonel in the Air Force, and his son, Nathan, who was in ROTC, uh, they uh, had their uniforms on. And at the gravesite, they folded the flag. Mm. And it was very moving. Mm. And I know Fred was smiling. Yeah. It was ex- everything was exactly as he would have wanted it to be. Yeah. That's really, really beautiful part of the story. Well, also, let me just mention something else about the uh, funeral. At the visitation, people could get up and say, make comments, uh, as they often do Mm -hmm. uh, at visitations. And one of the young men there um, had uh, worked with Fred, or Fred had worked with him in the uh, Big Brothers, Little Brothers organization. And they had kind of lost contact over the years, Uh, but, that was part of the volunteer work that Fred yes. did in his retirement. Right. And he One did of many of things he did. Yeah. Lots, lots of other things, too, with Feed My Starving Children and Homeless Shelter in Aurora and in St. Charles. Mm-hmm. So he, he was, uh, he, you know, give this one elderly lady a ride to church every Sunday. And right. he just, he was just a very caring person. But this young man, uh, grandmother, stood up and she talked about what an, influence, positive influence, uh, Fred had been in uh, her grandson's life. Mm -hmm. And then um, the young man came up to me at the end of the service, and he said, I wrote a letter for Fred. And um, he said, would you put it in the casket? And I said, no, I want you to. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't feel comfortable doing it. I said, well, you come with me. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, he went up there and we put that in. I thought that's so touching mm-hmm. that Fred influenced people that he never knew. Yeah, in ways he never he never knew. Yeah, and there were so many stories um, about people saying, and my my children have said uh, many times that they were better people for having had Fred in their life. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful. So in what ways have you memorialized Fred since he passed away? One of the things that I wanted to do for Fred was to honor him uh, in as many ways as I could think of. I was always very, very proud to be his wife. Mm. So, um, Did he know that? 
Pardon? Did he know that? You know, I probably didn't. I wish I had told him. I'm telling him now. Yeah. So, Fred, are you listening? That's right. He's listening. <laughs> I'm telling you now. He's very proud to be your wife. Yeah. I hope you know that. One of the ways that we wanted to uh, honor Fred and to memorialize him was to have a bench uh, in Wheeler Park. That's uh, right across the street from our home. And we positioned it so that if you're sitting on the bench, you can see our front door. Mm. And on it, uh, we had put a plaque uh, that actually was referenced uh, during the visitation by my oldest son, Mike. And I thought it was so beautiful that that we wanted to put it on the plaque. And it's by William Somerset Mom from Razor's Edge. There lived in this age a very remarkable creature. I don't... I don't think anyone can fail to be better, nobler, kinder for knowing him. Goodness is, after all, the greatest force in the world. Mm. We also uh, had a tree, an oak tree planted, and I have a plaque on that that says, um, for my buddy, Fred Gregor, with love and many wonderful memories. Uh, and then my name, followed by FF, and that's forever faithful. Mm-hmm. Forever faithful. Forever faithful. Yeah. Also, you know, that was something that was really important to Fred, mm-hmm. his faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And um, I, he, he said to me before we got married, he said, the only thing I'll ever ask of you is to be faithful. Mm. And I had it engraved in his wedding ring. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. The other kind of funny story, strange story about his wedding ring is obviously he had lost some some weight because of the hospital stays and so forth. And he lost his wedding ring. Mm-hmm. And he, he put out a reward at the hospital for anybody who could find it. We turned that room upside down, looking wow. the bed springs everywhere. And we could not find that wedding ring. And we thought, well, it's just gone. Mm. And then it was so strange. We uh, were shopping, grocery shopping, and opened the trunk. And that trunk had been opened a hundred times. And... Something caught my eye, and it was that wedding ring. Really? It had apparently slipped off his finger, and it was just there. In the trunk. Wow. And I made sure that that was buried with Fred. Oh. I would like to have kept it, but I wanted him to have it, too. Yeah, that's always a tough decision to make. Yeah, it is. Um, how about music? Is there any particular music that brings to mind Fred? I think the one of his favorite songs is also a way that you memorialized him. Uh, on the back of the tombstone, we have uh, Wind Beneath My Wings. Hmm. Uh, he loved that song. Uh, we had it played at our wedding. Oh. And, um, you know, it just, was, it just really resonated with him. So on the back of the tombstone is, Did you ever know that you're my hero? You're everything I would like to be. I can fly higher than an eagle. You are the wind beneath my wings. Thank God for you, the wind beneath my wings. You asked about other ways that what we did. The Geneva History Museum was uh, having um, a beautification part of the uh, alley. They were uh, selling pavers, and they were doing landscaping and so forth. So we bought a paver Mm -hmm. with Fred's name on it, and it reads in memory of Fred Q. Krugier, but on the perimeter of the paver, we had the words that we felt really summarized who he was, Mm -hmm. and they were, 
entrepreneur, friend, dad, husband, gentleman, grandpa. Mm, yeah. He also has a star at Lazarus House, our homeless shelter, <laughs> because so many people do, uh, gave money uh, for the charities. And uh, because of the amount that was given, uh, they have a star there. It's um, I think I gave you a picture of that, mm-hmm. uh, Mandy. It's like Giving Tree or uh, Lifelong Givers or something, and they right. have a star with his name on it. Oh, that's really, really nice. So... Have you had any signs from Fred since he's passed? I, you know, I, I, I have, I have. Um, it's convinced me that there is a spirituality about us. I certainly don't have all the answers, but um, in a dream, and it wasn't long after he died, I. Was, uh, had come home from work and I was walking down the hallway to our bedroom and he was standing in the doorway and I said, oh, you're here. Mm. And then he quickly disappeared. Mm. But, you know, God often speaks in dreams. Mm. If you say, look at the Bible, there's so many people had these dreams. Sure. And messages are given at that time. So I think that was just a quick touch base. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, you know, every night Fred would rub my shoulder before we go, go to sleep Wonderful. or rub my feet if we're watching uh, television. Yeah. And I sometimes have felt, a, you know, a sense, not so much now as I did at first, but even sometimes at the kitchen table, if I'm just sitting there, I just reach my hand out because we would often hold hands. Mm. I'd reach out and we'd, you know, hold hands. Mm. And so I put my hand there. Mm. So far he hasn't grabbed it yet, but <laughs> it's there. <laughs> Just waiting for him to grab it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So how do you want people to remember Fred? I think that Fred was a man of integrity, Mm -hmm. steadfastness, loved his children, Mm -hmm. Love me, love my children. Mm -hmm. Fred just really exemplified unconditional love. Mm. That's beautiful. If he loved you, he really loved you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, he was a he was just he was a wonderful, wonderful man, and I'm so pleased to be able to honor him uh, through this work that we're doing now. Yeah. Um, and we'll continue to try to find ways to honor him, yeah, so that he's never forgotten. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Joanne. I've really enjoyed talking about Fred and just learning a lot more about him because I really only met him a few times. And it's been a real joy to read his autobiography and to listen to you talk about him. So thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. And Mandy, I was just looking at my notes. There's just one more thing that I wanted to say. Uh, one of the things that we talked about is how has uh, Fred impacted, impacted other people's lives? Yeah. And my sons refer to WWFD, what would Fred do? <laughs> I love that. And just recently, you know, every year on his birthday, I have uh, flowers put on the altar mm-hmm. in memory of his birthday. And um, 
this past September, I was sitting in the pew, and my uh, middle son, Marcus, came and sat in front. He was uh, just teasing me like, you know, he didn't know I was behind him or something. But he said, you know, he said, Mom, I, I woke up this morning, and I thought, okay, WWF2, <laughs> he would be here. <laughs> and here I am. And I find that he's made me a better person because I often, I don't say it exactly like WWFD, but I do think, what would Fred want me to do? Yeah. He made me a better person. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share with uh, other people who maybe have uh, experienced loss but still have those wonderful memories yeah. that keep them alive. Yeah, and he's set such a great example of writing his story, which I think is really important. So I'm really hoping that uh, our listeners take that to heart and do that. I hope you enjoyed the life story of Fred Cregeer, and I really hope you'll consider capturing your life story for your family and descendants. I actually started writing my own story, and it's pretty fascinating to think about so many of my experiences from all the different stages of my life. You never know, you might have a story worth publishing. You can see pictures of Fred and Joanne on our Instagram and Facebook pages. I want to thank Joanne again for sharing Fred's story with you and me. That's the show for today. Until next time, I'm Mandy Faber, and this has been Dedicated to the Dead. Don't forget, you can bring joy and healing to people who are grieving just by asking about their dead loved one and listening to their story. Because it's how they lived that matters most, not how they died. Today's episode was edited by Stevie Brock. Our fantastic theme music is by the wildly talented Sean Jelinek. Please don't forget, subscribe to, rate, and review the show and share it with all your friends. And I also hope you'll follow us on social media. Bye for now. Bye for now.